Today on the Saber.com podcast, we look at the football team's struggles in October and discuss whether they can upset North Carolina on Halloween. Plus, we continue our preseason breakdown of Virginia basketball. And in celebration of October's two full moons, we look at music related to the moon. Let's go. The online source for the serious Wahoo fan, thesaber.com. Time for another edition of the Saber.com podcast. Jeff Sweatman, your host, joined by Chris Horn and Chris Wright as we analyze all things UVA sports. Taking a look back at a, another rough visit to Miami for uh, Bronco Mendenhall and the football team. A little bit better, some signs of improvement, but not quite there against the uh, highly ranked Hurricanes. Four-game losing streak now for the Who's, so... What were your overall thoughts on the game? Let's start with you, Chris Wright. I mean, I think better, um, but they're still doing the things that cost you to lose, right? So not as many of them. So they didn't have a turnover until that kind of desperation, multilateral Stanford band thing they were trying to do at the end. So until that fumble, no turnovers, but still gave up a long touchdown, still missed a field goal, still had a couple of special teams miscues. Otherwise, Tavares Kelly brought one out of the, the end zone and gave them bad starting field position on one. So uh, some critical penal- penalties again. You had the scramble touchdown at the end of the first half that would have given them, I think, a 14-7 lead. And it's called back because Tony Poljan lines up wrong. He covered up Grant Mish. Grant Mish is ineligible downfield. That takes a touchdown off the board. They end up not even scoring on that possession. So still doing the things that can cost you games, and they don't have a very large margin of error. So even like four of those a game is enough to get them beat. More than four is enough to get them blown out, <laughs> right? So they just don't have a lot of wiggle room. They have to play almost super clean or almost perfect in terms of self-beating mistakes in order to have a chance to win. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, I mean, it's kind of like Virginia just kind of in a in a time loop of sorts. It's kind of like the same things just keep happening every game. And like the last two games, I mean, they've had chances to get take the lead, which it was kind of you know that. So they haven't had a lead since Duke. So it's the first game of the season. So, um, you know, I think this team, especially in order to be able to rely on the defense, they have to get a lead and then let the defense hopefully seal the game out. But, you know, it's interesting that you look at the last two weeks, they just, for some reason, <laughs> I mean, it's just kind of like they just keep shooting themselves in the foot. And then Brian Delaney's now kind of missing field goals the last two weeks. So they just haven't been able to kind of get the lead. And, and uh, yeah, as, as Chris mentioned, just kind of, you can kind of, I mean, you know, there's just kind of little things here and there. Like, you know, I think it was like a third down. Brennan Armstrong runs for a first down. And then Olu Oluwatini gets a holding call, which was, you know, Brennan Armstrong was, I think, 10 yards after, you know, Pat first down was already had. And uh, so it was really just a kind of a head scratcher of a, of a holding uh, penalty there. So UVA, I mean, the bottom line is they're just not making the plays that they need to make. They're not being solid enough, but then when it comes time to make the game winning plays, they're just not making them. And, uh, and just, you, you know, you end up on the wrong side of the uh, uh, win loss column there. I don't know if any of the other average fans like me out there were a bit surprised by the, the post-game comments that I heard from Bronco, you know, to be a football coach, you got to kind of be a master psychologist, I guess, in a lot of respects. So maybe he's not talking to the media or the fans when he when he says certain things. He's talking to his own team, right? But uh, I found him surprisingly upbeat after such a, a lackluster effort. I guess you did have a step up in the competition you were playing. The conditions, once again, were horrible. Hard to play in, a, in an absolute torrential downpour for both sides there. But uh I, I don't know. It was uh, some coaches have different ways of reacting to <laughs> losses, I guess. Right. So, I mean, he's a defensive coach and that was a pretty well-played defensive game. So maybe that's part of it. And the defense has been mostly good except for the big plays, right. On all the other plays that are like, not just better than, than average, they're in elite territory on a lot of these plays. Right. But they're struggling on third down and they're giving up big plays. So you know, from that standpoint, there is a lot for him to be positive about, I think. Some of it is psychology, right? You don't want to lose your team. It, they can see the record. They know what's going on. Um, so sometimes you do talk to your team through the media. <laughs> Every coach does that. I don't care what level you're on. That's something that, that coaches do. So that's part of it. They're not that far away. I think that's fair. But I also think, to be realistic, they're not making any of those plays. 
So you can either say, you guys are awful and you're not making any of these plays, or you can say, hey, we're this close, we're this close, we're this close, um, and keep guys bought in. And then you hope that they do make a couple of those plays um, in an upcoming game. I mean, I think that's really the only way he can really go about it right now. Yeah, I think with also with COVID-19, I think, um, I mean, obviously he's seen, uh, he made a comment, not this week, but last week about uh, how proud he is of the team and what they've gone through and just the dedication they're putting into following the rules and doing everything they're supposed to do just to play. So I think that, I think that's kind of part of it as well. But, uh, but yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, from a defensive perspective, I think they play well. I think a lot, you know, Miami hit on a lot of explosive plays that we talked about, like the plus 20 yards, but a good, uh, probably not half. I mean, there was, you know, Virginia had a lot of trouble with the quick out and then they just, took off um, and were able to get some big yards that way. But there were a couple of plays that Miami just made. I mean, you just tip your hat to them. They just made some flat-out great receptions and uh, great, you know, great needle passes. No, but I think, uh, yeah, I think it's – and I also think he kind of knows that it's, you know, it's a young offense, you know, Brennan Armstrong. You know, he, he mentioned from earlier on, I think, after the Duke game that – that he's going to experience some growing pains. Obviously, he's, he was coming back from an injury. There's just kind of a lot of pieces that they're trying to mesh together, graduate transfers, new players, you know, trying to replace Assis Dubois and Joe Reed from last year at receiver has been uh, has been a challenge. So, you know, I think he knows that they're kind of going through a lot and hopefully just trying to get, you know, some positive, um, say some positive things about them. Because, I mean, a you know, positive thing is they didn't have turnovers, which was killing them earlier in the year so hopefully take that build on it which they're going to need to build on it for unc for <laughs> for offense that's for sure and listen the scheme has regularly produced games offensively where they're inconsistent and not very good that's been true for four and a half years there are games where the offense doesn't play very well well unfortunately they're stacking them all in a row right now you know the scheme's not changing so the players need to execute better within what they're doing in order to make it work but this offense does that sometimes. It just disappears or has bad bad games, bad drives, bad halves, whatever you want to call it. Um, and if that doesn't change, you may still see some of these games continue to pop up. You just hope they don't happen so often. Yeah, the, the third quarter was a disappointment, I think, from the offense. I mean, they just three – I mean, they got one first down the whole quarter. So the first quarter was better, but they had the really good drive, the first drive. But the third quarter was just a real dud. So that, that kind of disappointed me. And then – the whole uh, quarterback rotation, I thought it was kind of interesting that he said, you know, they went totally went away from the Armstead-Thompson rotation after the first series of the third quarter based off of Miami's adjustments. You know, I think I still think that's a that's something that they could, you know, especially in a close game to get that keep that running game going, um, something that they could lean on, especially with Ke- Keaton Thompson, who to me looks like a real natural runner, has a good feel for uh, running himself, but also maybe running that the read option and things like that. That's something that, you know, I wouldn't mind seeing them stick with a little bit longer. I mean, he got one carry and they, they never did it again. So mm-hmm. the adjustment must've been either mind blowing. Like that's the most incredible defensive adjustment I've ever seen. So I'm not even going to okay. challenge them or you're worried about wasting plays against it. So ultimately what happened is Miami stuck an extra guy in the box, right? Stop the run. And the only way to back that up is to go with Armstrong, the only quarterback you have on the roster that can throw the ball consistently. But now with that said, uh, so understanding where that comes from, you tried it once. What happens if 6'4", 215, Keaton Thompson, even with eight in the box, breaks one tackle and gets seven yards or whatever? Now they were still getting good running from other spots. So maybe you felt like you didn't need it or whatever, but I'm someone that would want him as involved as possible. And if that is only in the running game, fine. But, you know, he, he can catch – he caught, he caught a good pass on the sideline. Like, you need more receiver production, even if it's just like – all Miami did was stack three receivers over there constantly, right, and try to confuse the the defense, right? So put him among three, throw him a wide receiver screen that Jeff hates, throw him – right? And they did try to throw him a one-on-one opportunity in the flats once where he had to try to break a tackle one-on-one, but that's not a wide receiver screen. They need to find ways they can use him more effectively other than just go, all right, we're going to motion you into wildcat quarterback or we're going to throw you a little sideline jump ball. I mean, I'm being a little bit harsh on the offense, but they got to be more creative and use guys more effectively more often. Um, And that's an ongoing complaint from me with the offense, not just this season. Um, I think a lot of times that they just go away from things and it's like, well, 
why, why haven't you do that again? Like, did you not circle that on your play card when it worked in the first half? Why the Terrell Jana 49 yarder, uh, that was not a hard play. He motioned in, he motioned out. They saw it was man. They threw it to him. He broke a tackle. You didn't circle that on your play card and come back to it. Like that, those, those are the kind of things that make me like frustrated with the offense. Yeah. And even that touchdown, that got called back, which turned out to be you know, so huge when, you know, going for it later on fourth down and not, not getting it. I mean, that, it was a great, seemed like a great well-designed play. The receiver was open, great pass, and just uh, tough to have those type of plays uh, taken back by penalties. And Chris Horn, you mentioned COVID. Um, Davis Jr. was not in the lineup. It was a bummer to, to see him. I was trying to figure out, wait, did I miss a, a story about him being hurt or what? what's the deal? And uh, according to the Danville uh, Register and B down uh, in the southern part of the state, UVA does not share sport-by-sport sport breakdown and positive test results. Four UVA football players were unavailable for competition this past weekend. So how big a factor do you think that was, especially in the uh, the secondary? We're missing some key folks there. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think um... – yeah, I mean, uh, Coach Mendenhall mentioned that that his presence is is needed because he's really the only deep ball threat that they have, and it doesn't seem like I, I think Tavares Kelly Jr. is really the only you know real speedster. We've heard uh, uh, Demex Starling, who's a true freshman as well, have that he has pretty good speed as well, but we haven't seen him that much. But really, they don't have a lot of guys who can get a lot of separation on the outside from cornerbacks. Uh, so occasionally, we'll see like. Kind of looks like a, it looks like he's just throwing it up to like Billy Kemp, which you know that's not really going to work out too well for in, in Virginia's favor. Throwing it up to him, so they really need Davis this year, you know, as a guy who can just go up and get get the deep pass. So I think he definitely was missed in that regard. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I think we did get to see a little bit of Rayshon Henry. He had two targets really in that first touchdown call back, and then the other touchdown they had in the second half. So maybe he's like Chris Carter; all he does is catch touchdowns. I don't know, but uh, but he he could be a guy to watch out. But they need somebody to really outside of like Lavelle Davis really step up. I think uh, as a receiver, and you know Billy Kemp's doing well, but you know maybe I don't I'm not sure where they're going to find it. You know Terrell, Terrell Jan is solid, reliable guy, but in terms of being a real playmaker, um, you know I haven't seen it yet. I mean, it looks like. Paul Jan's getting more comfortable, I think, with Armstrong uh, in there, and he seems like he's kind of settling in. Obviously, he made that great touchdown catch, so maybe he's a guy. But they, just, yeah, they need some somebody to really step up and and be a playmaker that they really need, or else they're going to have to, I think, rely on like being methodical. Maybe rely more heavily on the running game with Armstrong and Thompson and Tyler Papa, who's running well, and those guys, and kind of make it a grinded out rushing type game as opposed to leaning on the pass so much. While we're talking about receivers and execution mistakes, things like that, let, let me ask you guys what you think the number is, and then, and then I'll tell you. How many drop passes do you think they've had in five games? Ooh, total? Total, yeah. Five times five, I'd say between 25 and 30. Let's go 15. 15, yeah, it's right in the middle. They've had 19 drop passes this mm. season. They only had eight in 14 games last year. So wow. that's where you're seeing Joe Reed and Hasis Dubois uh, absent showing up, they never drop the football, <laughs> right? So, um, and even Jana and Kemp, who were really good at it last year, have had trouble holding on to it a little bit at times this year. Pole Jan's dropped a bunch. Yeah, they that's one area execution wise that is an easy one to fix. If you get your hands on the football, you should catch it. End of, end of discussion. I don't care if it was a hard catch or not. You got your hands on it. And I'm sure Coach Higgins agrees with me. Get your hands on the football, catch it. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and then, yeah, I, went, I went through and, and when I watched the game again and, and watched all of uh, Brennan's passes and yeah, there were three definite drops, which were like right on the money passes. I know Billy Kemp had one kind of later in the game. Paul Jan had one earlier in the game. And then there were, there were a couple that I chalked up as like good defensive plays, but those are kind of like plays that it's like those one-on-one -on -one matchups that UVA talks about that they have to win and they consistently lose. It seems like more often than not, Whereas you looked on the other side, Miami, as I mentioned earlier, they were making these fantastic catches, going over defenders to make make catches. And, uh, you know, you just kind of weren't seeing that on the other side. And then, you know, I think Armstrong, I didn't think any of his passes were really in the pickoff range, which was a step in the right direction for sure. But he had like nine passes that were just really not that great, uh, great passes. So that's something he can improve upon as well. But, um, but certainly, yeah, Paul Jan, uh, uh, Billy Kemp, who's been – pretty good so far but you know i think uva has just got to make more plays um anytime there's a play that can be made they got to start making them well and i'll just chalk it up to um 
the rain. I mean, it, it looked like it was absolutely pouring down there. So maybe some of those uh, can be rectified with a little bit better weather for uh, both the quarterback and the receivers involved. And going into the game, let's talk about a couple of positives we can take away here, guys. Uh, I was really scared going in about DR King. I mean, that guy has played fantastic so far this year. Had an okay game, but, you know, the weather played to UVA's benefit in that case and, and kind of <laughs> perhaps helped the defense. But the run defense seems to be uh, stepping up a little bit. And uh, shout out to Nick Jackson, career high 16 tackles. So what did you guys see there, uh, linebacker related or just overall defensive effort? The rush lane discipline we talked about on the podcast was not great. They, they let him escape out far too many times. And it's several of those deep passes from King were on those type of situations. So that was one area that I was not pleased with. But overall, the defense was good. I mean, you 19 points, only one explosive touchdown. And I hate that I say only one. There should be zero. First um, play of the game, right? right first play of the play. game. They, they've got to stop doing that. But by and large, the run defense has been really good all season. I think they're at around 3.3 or 3.4 yards per carry allowed. So other than the one really big run from Wake and the one 30-some yard run from NC State, they've bottled up the running game pretty well. That's going to be important in this next segment when we talk about Carolina because they run the football well. But the problem is they're not building on that. They're not building on that. So they're getting teams into third down. They're getting favorable down on distance, and then they don't finish it off. So Coach Mendenhall did say at his weekly press conference, he thinks the inside linebackers are the best position on the team right now in terms of defense uh, and execution. And Nick Jackson, you know, we, we talk about a lot of things, but um, he's been really, really solid, really solid. I asked him about those inside blitzes that they like. How can you get those those cleaned up? Because that's one area I don't think is great. I don't think the execution from him and, and Zane is super good on those inside blitzes for the frequency they call them. But otherwise, both of those guys are playing pretty well. They're not missing that many tackles for the volume they're asked to make. Uh, and then they're in the right spot a lot and physical. They're, they're finishing off plays. So, yeah, pr- pretty happy with that that duo on the inside. Yeah, I know Noah Taylor's fast, but putting him on the number one receiver for the other team doesn't seem like a good move. So I'm not sure I'm not sure if that was a, a blown coverage or something like that. That looked like happened. a scouting report touchdown to me. They, you know, trips yeah. receivers and they crossed the receivers over, which means the defense had to hand it off. And for where Noah Taylor was, it had to get handed off wrong. That just, that couldn't have been, that could not have been the plan. I mean, if that was the plan, there's much bigger problems. <laughs> yeah, that was tough to watch. Yeah, but it, but um, no, but yeah, I think the inside linebacker, I mean, it was goodness for me. It was great to see Charles Snowden be active and really make plays early in the game. And uh, I think he had, what, like a sack and a tackle for loss within like the first quarter and and change I think so it was really good to see him active and I think he's you know really it's we kind of mentioned that you know coaches talking through the media uh yeah they weren't shy about saying we need more production from Charles Snowden and of course we were talking about hey is he injured or what's going on um but I think uh it's good it's a good sign to see how Charles has really responded to that I think and played solidly against Wake Forest and then played very well against uh, Wake Forest. And was, you know, Zane Zandier, um, I, I'm Nick Jackson, I will get to him in a second, but he's really impressed me throughout this year. You know, last year he played a ton, I think the most snaps of any defensive player on the team, but his grade wasn't super high. It was like in the, uh, I want to say lower 60s. I don't want to shortchange him uh, according to Pro Football Focus. But this year he's the highest graded defender currently uh, in the lower 70s. He's still playing a ton. So, obviously, he's raised his game. He's doing some things this year. He's smashing in the guys and things like that. He, he will occasionally get out of position. UVA had Miami pinned uh, against their goal line, and and Derek King was able to uh, scamper out because um, I think Zane had kind of responsibility for contain maybe and kind of kept going instead of containing. And so, King just kind of escaped from there. But Zandier and uh, Nick Jackson, man, I, I was encouraged by his offseason, but I've been really – really impressed by how he's played. I did not see him necessarily being this good, this young. I mean, he's, he kind of reminds me of uh, Micah Kaiser, but better maybe at the same state. I mean, he's just, cause he's all over the place. He's, he, I love the way he tackles. Once he gets his arms on you, he, you're going down. He's a sure tackler. You know, I think pass coverage could be an area. He's, you know, obviously he's, he's still a young guy, so he's still improving. So that, you know, tight end pass early in the game that went for a long game where the tight end was kind of wide open over the middle with like a quick slant. I think he had he gotten over there a little bit quicker, maybe he could have stopped that. But um, overall, yeah, I mean, he's he's really uh, uh, living up to the offseason billing and then some. So 
UVA has got to be pretty excited about him uh, and his future. I'm glad you mentioned Micah Kaiser. I was sitting here thinking while you started talking about him before you said that, he might be the best inside linebacker they've had yet. He's got an opportunity to be that guy. And remember, Micah Kaiser was a 100-plus tackling machine regularly for years. He won the, the Campbell Trophy. He started in the NFL, and Nick Jackson has a chance to be the best yet. You know, it's either Mac or Kaiser, I guess, or the so far, right? And we're only four years in, and those two played a lot of the snaps out of those four years. Mm-hmm. Um, but Jackson's got this year and two more in theory. So, yeah, he might end up being the best inside linebacker uh, of the Mendenhall era here. We'll see. Yeah, those guys, they're just so much fun to watch. I just watch, like watching them play. They smash into the line. They uh, When they bring down the ball carrier, again, they bring them down. Then just while I'm thinking about that, Jawan Briggs doing a great job of that, uh, you know, being physical, making tackles at the line of scrimmage. Richard Burney, I'm loving his effort as well. And, and Mandy Alonzo, I think those guys are really playing with a lot of effort and toughness uh, on the defensive line. But, yeah, I'm have, and all the talk coming, coming into the season was about the outside guys, which, you know, rightfully so. But can't say enough about how well Zane and uh, and Nick are playing so far. When you guys mentioned Joe Reed earlier, shout out to him uh, for getting his first NFL touchdown for the San Diego Chargers over the weekend so looking good there and well we'll turn our attention to the Tar Heels in the next segment UVA one and four North Carolina four and one going to be a Halloween evening matchup in Charlottesville this Saturday night so we'll uh, delve into the Tar Heels next here on the Saber.com podcast it's your number one online source as a Virginia fan the Saber.com and we're back for the second segment of the Saber.com podcast this week we'll talk some UVA hoops coming up and delve into our turning the table segment for a little music uh, a couple of full moons here in october so we got some full moon kind of songs and it'll be a full moon on halloween too so get ready uh to howl <laughs> i guess and it should be um an interesting atmosphere for a halloween evening game in charlottesville with mac brown and the tar heels coming to town what do you guys think about this matchup um, points have been an issue for the virginia offense UNC hasn't had much trouble scoring so far. So is that where you guys see we're another one of those games we're just going to have to keep up on the on the scoreboard kind of games? Yeah, that, that part catches your eye. 37.8 points per game, and that's only 20th nationally. <laughs> so let me say it again for the people in the back. This is a scoring sport. You have to score points. So if your goal is 24 or 27, you're wrong. Your goal needs to be 30 or more every week, no matter who you are playing. You have to score points to win in college football. If you're playing North Carolina, they are going to score points more than likely. So it's even more important (laughs) uh, this week. So I can't speak it any more clearly than that to me. And I've been saying this for years and it's much, much better under Robert and I than it was prior to Robert and I, but Yeah, Virginia doesn't score enough points. It was a big part of the long lost decade of football where they didn't have very many winning seasons. And it is still an issue in 2020. Score more points. Yeah, this year especially. uh, They have one game over over 30 points. And then you know, put up 14 against Miami, and then it's uh, you know in the in the lower 20s the rest of the three games. So I mean, especially against when we saw what North Carolina did last year. But fortunately, that's when UVA's offense really became alive uh, last year to really uh, start that kickstart that run to the Coastal Division Championship. But yeah, I mean uh, Brown, the receiver from uh, North Carolina, I think had three touchdowns against UVA last year, so he's back. Uh, their two really good running backs are back. Another receiver, New- Daz Newsom, is is back, and of course the quarterback Sam Howell is back. I think I think last year I think they're going to remember that UVA beat them last year, so I think they're going to come ready to play. And they just have, I mean, they just have so many weapons, um, especially that running game. Tough to you just really cancel it. It's really a pick your poison type of type of situation. Yeah, you know, I think UVA again. I, I like their run defense and what they've done. So I think they may slow down the run, rushing attack a little bit. What scares me is on the back end. And Coach Menhall mentioned the inconsistencies and and things like that. And with especially with new guys, if if Joey Blount and Brent Nelson are out again, then you're talking about using Antonio Clary. Cohen King. I know last year they had to go to true freshman Donovan Johnson when D'Angelo Amos went out. So that that's going to be a huge plus for UNC. Um, so it's going to be imperative. You know, UVA is going to have to stuff the run and get pressure on Hal all game long, and UVA is going to have to score some points too. 
Maybe some holes on the defensive side for Carolina. Uh, Chris Wright, what do you think? Uh, they've allowed some big plays, looks like, allowing 4.1 yards per carry. So you see that triple quarterback threat playing a role again for UVA this time? Feels like they're trending away from it. So I don't think we'll see it a lot in terms of the quarterbacks. But, well, the quarterback's not named Armstrong. That's the thing. Armstrong can run it. So you, that'll still be part of it. But maybe they're less inclined to mix it up to try to get offensive rhythm. Um, we'll see. But... Yeah, Carolina, 4.1 yards per carry. That's, you know, bot bottom half of the country. It's not great. They've allowed 15 plays of 30 yards or more. So we talk about Virginia. Virginia's allowed 17 plays of 30 yards or more. So Carolina also clearly has an issue with it. The question is, can Virginia take advantage of that? Maybe, maybe. But can they do it consistently is the real big question. So I, I think there are some vulnerabilities there, but I'm not sure it's, it's glaring where you go, oh yeah, they could easily do this and that, and it's going to be a shootout. And I don't think Carolina's defense is that much of a concern going into this matchup. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see. But I do think there are some areas that they could build on. And I think it has to start with establishing the run and don't bail on it so early. Stick with it and, and play keep away a little bit. Well, the last weekend, UVA went from, I think, an 11.5 point underdog to 12.5 to 13.5. So it did kind of increase throughout the week. They did manage to beat the spread at least. Uh, the line this week looks like 6.5 which to me seems a little low, but uh, UNC, they've been playing well. They were ranked as high as number five, I think, earlier uh, this year, a couple weeks ago. They have only stumbled once. So, Chris Horn, what's uh, your prognosis here for what UVA needs to do? Yeah, it's kind of a surprising surprising number, I think, um, given uh, UNC's firepower. Um, I mean, they, I think UVA's got to stop the run first. And, you know, as good as Sam Howell is, I think you make him beat you through the air. Um, I think they have the two running backs, Williams and Carter, combined for – have rushed for over 1,000 yards and are averaging somewhere around like seven yards a carry uh, so far this year. So those guys are really, really good. And if they can get that run game going against Virginia, UVA is just going to have a tough time all game long, I think, because, I mean, that opens up play action and – then you bring in the speedy receivers uh, into the into the picture and everything. So, yeah, I think try to stop the run first, which hopefully is a good thing because UVA has done, very, done just that really for the majority of the season, has played really well um, in terms of rush defense, as we mentioned earlier. But, yeah, I think, again, Sam Howe is really good. Uh, but I guess an offense that's got so many weapons, you got to start somewhere, and I think you always start with the run game and try to slow that down. Yeah, just to build on that for a second, Javante Williams and Michael Carter, you mentioned. Javante Williams, 375 yards. Michael Carter, 333 yards rushing. You're going, wait, that doesn't add up to over 1,000, like Chris said. That's after contact, 375 yards rushing after first contact, 333 yards rushing after first contact. They're both averaging four and a half yards of carry after contact, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, so if I can't get your attention, like with how, how important uh, tackling and, and assignments and all that is for this game, you better not come in there one, one person, one armed. It's like it, it, it ain't going to work. Berman thing, right? Chris Berman, poof. <laughs> <laughs> right exactly well maybe maybe a bend don't break uh philosophy this week especially carolina seems like uh they've been struggling a bit on special teams four of eight on field goals this year you know is that is there something to that where maybe you do give give up some yards and and try to hunker down in the, in the red zone what uh or has carolina been so explosive with the big plays that they don't even need to go to the red zone chris horn have you <laughs> seen anything there sure if they can if they can control that sure why not they'll just uh do the bend but don't break thing again i think it, you i mean their running game is really good so but it matches up with the strength that is uva so i think if uva can it's going to be tough for the secondary of uva is to limit big plays i think especially given what we saw last year i mean unc's just got really fast guys and, you know, UVA has got some youth now in the secondary. And, you know, D'Angelo Amos, I think, is is playing well. But, again, he's in his first year in the UVA system as well. So not having the experienced guys this week, I think, will be really big. We saw what happened last year, which, again, Brown was able to have, I think, three touchdowns. And uh, UVA's defense was able to hold them a couple times, fortunately, and then just outscore the rest of the way. So I think UVA's defense is going to have to have – yeah, I think we – think that they had their best game of the season well 
you know, after Duke, uh, maybe Miami this past week, they're going to have to have a phenomenal game uh, against North Carolina to have, for, to have a chance is because I'm just not sold that the EVA offense can be consistent enough. Not that North Carolina's defense is world beaters, but it's not sure that uh, UVA's offense is c- consistent enough at this point to really get the job done unless the defense really comes through in a major way. You know, reporters asked Nick Jackson, who we were talking about earlier, how he thought the tackling was this year. And he said he thinks it's been pretty good. The pro football focus grades back him up. They're reasonably well graded, the regulars are, in terms of, of tackling grades. So that part's been okay. Nick Jackson's been really good. Two missed tackles. Two. <laughs> um, so they need that type of performance across the roster uh, against this Carolina team for the reasons I was just saying. My choice, one, never snap the ball before 10 seconds left on the play clock. Run the ball a lot. Bend but don't break. Let's shorten this thing up. <laughs> play keep away a little bit and then try to get stops in the red zone or, or, or force field goals, that, which they did well against Miami. They did get red zone stops. Miami was one touchdown out of four red zone trips. Uh, Virginia blocked a kick. That was uh, D'Angelo Amos who blocked several at JMU as well. So, yeah, I think that has to be the formula. And that's sort of what they were doing with Bryce Perkins early on to help him out too. Slow it all down. Let him take his time and make reads. And I, and I know we've said here and, and they've said that the Brennan likes to go, go, go and put pressure on the defense, but that's not really helping the offense. They're not scoring enough points. So if we're going to get into these low scoring whatevers. If I'm, if I'm the coach, I'm going, all right, if this is how we are, this is our identity. Coaches figure out, you know, talk all the time. We have to figure out what our identity is. If that's what it is, don't snap the ball so fast. Huddle every time. Try not to stop the clock on your own incompletions as much. That sort of thing. And then uh, try, try to get red zone stops at the very least. Hopefully before the red zone, but at the very least force field goal. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to me for UVA with, uh, first of all, with the tackling, I think I feel good about the front seven and what they're able to bring to the table as far as from the tackling perspective. I think while Devontae Cross and Nick Grant have played uh, I think they've done pretty well in coverage, especially Cross, who's really, I think, surprised me this year. I think they have gotten beat occasionally where they've, they've given up some tack, like they've uh, the offense has been able to run through those guys and break the tackles. So I think those guys are going to have to be, you know, they have the size, so they're going to have to match that physicality as well to help out as well with the rush uh, uh, rush defense. Again, it's going to be, a, I think, a, just a complete team effort um, uh, for UVA. But one thing, you know, rushing-wise, it's kind of interesting. You know, Chris, I think Wayne Talapapa, seems, he's running well, but it seems like every game he winds up with 10 carries. <laughs> it's like, now, is he a guy that – is that kind of his sweet spot, do you think, for him? Or do you think that, you know, is he a guy that they can give the ball more to and maybe lean on him – a little bit more. Yeah, they always say the quarterback. Well, they've been doing the Avengers thing lately where they're running every quarterback on the roster that's capable of running. So if you're going to do that, there <laughs> there aren't that many carries left over because they're they're not running it 50 times a game. They're throwing it 40, 50 times a game. So, you know, if, if you have your quarterbacks running it a bunch, there aren't that many carries left over. You know, I, I think historically Virginia and Virginia fans are so used to the you know, Keith Payne recently, uh, Cedric Pierman, Wally Lundy, Thomas Jones, like Tiki Barber, back to the Welsh days, Terry Kirby, right? Where I think Virginia fans have in their mind that man, just hand the hand the running back the football, hand the running back the football, hand the running back the football, and that's just not what this scheme is. It just isn't. Um, you're not going to see Towel Papa at 20, 25, 30 carries. Should he have 15 or 16 instead of 10? I think with the way he's running the ball, that's reasonable. Particularly if you're going to go away from quarterback runs, like we were saying uh, earlier. Are you guys seeing a little bit of happy feet from Armstrong from time to time? I guess that's to be expected as he, you know, builds up his reps and experience. I remember at least one or two times in the broadcast, the ACC announcers were saying there was no, he kind of almost ran into the defense instead of just taking his time, maybe just moving around a little bit in the pocket rather than bolting and ending up with a one or two yard gain. Um, And the other thing, Simpson had no rushes, which kind of sticks out in the box score to me a little bit. What do you, what are your thoughts on that? I would put Simpson at quarterback. I mean, excuse me, at uh, at receiver. Put no, at we don't need any more quarterbacks. More quarterbacks. Put him at receiver. Another quarterback. Come on, Chris. Right, yeah. <laughs> oh, put, put, put him at receiver. And then uh, particularly if Ronnie Walker's available and he might start being available this week, according to Coach yeah. Mendenhall, move Simpson to receiver. Put him in at kick return where you also need a, a bump and see if he can help you elsewhere because they're having a hard time figuring out how to mix him and Papa anyway. Why? Because mm-hmm. there's not enough carries to go around because they give all those to the quarterbacks. So yeah. in terms of Armstrong and happy feet, frankly, the announcers are just wrong. They don't watch Virginia enough. Brendan Armstrong, as a young quarterback in this system, is told on some of those plays, make your one RPO read. If you didn't like it, run it. Okay, yeah. So that's what's mm-hmm. happening. Those are mostly RPOs that that's happening on. 
a nine or their or their quarterback draws like yeah run plays where they go back and hesitate and then and then go and i think yeah i was listening to the uh hasselbeck i think got one in particular wrong where they were thinking that uh, Armstrong was just kind of scared looking to bolt instead of letting his progressions, you know, play out. But no, I think that looked like a design run play that we've seen for several years now, uh, for sure. I thought I thought Brendan was pretty, pretty poised. And I kind of I liked his, you know, when he got out of the pocket, you know, that, hey, that that pass to the end zone um, uh, for Henry that was called back, unfortunately, that was sweet. I mean, yeah. he got out, you know, he he, uh, he looked like he was really in his element again. And yeah, I think he just needs to, you know, play smart and more consistently and he needs to be more accurate i think in the pocket but it's you know he's fun to watch and maybe that miami game gave him some confidence and if he can get streaky who knows that could really help the the pass game uh against unc i just noticed another interesting thing here in the box score guys Uh, i don't know if you caught this but so great rushing game for armstrong 15 carries 91 yards 6.1 yards per carry right well he had 6.0 yards per pass (laughs) wow (laughs) 16 completions, 16 for 30. So a couple of touchdowns in there, and it, it they certainly kept it close. We can maybe talk about the uh, usage of timeouts. Do Should we go there <laughs> this week or just wait? That's an ongoing thing. So, I mean, we could talk about it any week. Honestly, this is <laughs> this has been an ongoing thing the entire the entire time, they have no problems using the def- uh, using the timeouts on defense the way that that happened again in this game. So it's clearly a philosophical choice, and and I, and I think Mendenhall would argue that preventing touchdowns by calling those timeouts is the only reason they were even in the game to need the yeah. timeouts. Is what he would argue. So it could be a fun debate. I know fans would love a debate. Yeah, it's just strange to look up at the clock. There's still nine and a half, ten minutes left in the game, and you got no timeouts. So uh, when they got it with. I think there was a chance, what, three, four minutes left. If we had, you know, we get get a stop there or it, somehow it ended up just Miami, you know, all they needed was one first down rather than having to actually, you know. I, I'm the wrong three. guy to ask because yeah. my assistant coaches get on me all the time for not using my timeout. You save them. I'm the anti-Pete Gillum. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm the wrong guy to ask. Let's just say that I would have a timeout left, probably would have two of the three left um, and tell the defense to get their act together <laughs> rather than wasting a timeout on defense. I literally, I, I, listen, I've told basketball players over the years, don't do that stupid thing where you dive on the floor and then call a timeout. Don't waste a timeout, <laughs> right? Like make a play when you're down there. Yep. <laughs> There's my rant. <laughs> I, I can see Mendenhall's point of view, especially down in Miami where it's humid, or uh, I guess it was humid, uh, humid and hot. Miami's going really fast. Uh, you know, but the, you know, the second time they used that timeout, they still scored a touchdown anyway. And then they used another timeout on a two point conversion. My, my issue was with the two point conversion because it was a 19 to 19 to seven game. I mean, obviously you want to, limit the points but but using a timeout there i guess kind of knowing that situation i I was kind of i was against that just because if they get two points you're still only down 14 points i mean it's still two touchdown game two two extra points so why why you know burn another timeout in that situation that being said uva you know miami was kind of helping out as well because they kept in their hurry up attack even though they could have easily just run the clock out uh, they kept kind of snapping the ball early, and then, uh, but UVA's defense again, you know, as good as they played, you know, they had a chance to get Miami off the field a few times and give the offense, you know, an, another chance. The way the offense is going, not saying they were capitalized, but um, you know, they had a chance to get Miami off the field, get UVA offense the possession one more time, and down five points, but they just weren't able to get it done. Well, and I agree with you guys in terms of slowing the tempo down and. And condensing the game, maybe pack line style against uh, the Tar Heels, especially. But while we're ranting here, maybe that's another one of my football pet peeves where you do have these high powered offenses, uh, especially among the upper echelon in the country, where it seems like they score every, every time they get it within a minute or two. And their poor defense then has to be out there for <laughs> 30, you know, three quarters of the game. And, and so sometimes that leads to the high uh, offensive output, too. I think the defense just wears down and. All of a sudden, maybe you had a good defense, but they're too tired because the offense is scoring too much. But uh, those would be good problems to have, wouldn't they, guys? So we'll uh, we'll talk about the good problems UVA men's basketball has as we look forward to the uh, very highly ranked. Well, we know what those preseason rankings are worth, but uh, we got some confirmed schedule news. So we'll get to that next here on the Saber.com podcast. All right.
we're at segment number three of the saber.com podcast. Jeff Sweatman, your host, along with Chris Horn and Chris Wright of the saber.com. We'll talk a little music coming up shortly, some uh, full moon songs and a couple of full moons in October, including one on Halloween. So get ready for that. And let's talk hoops. Gentlemen, we're almost ready to go. We'll have to wait a little bit longer, of course, this year to actually start the regular season. So talk about some of these games that have been uh, confirmed on the schedule. And there's some breaking news here in uh, recent hours about uh, some events down in Orlando for other teams around the country. There were, they were ESPN was going to combine a bunch of things bubble style. And now that's not happening. Right. Is that the latest? At one point they were talking about all the ESPN events being down there and now none of the ESPN <laughs> events going to be down there. So uh, Virginia was supposed to be in one of those that kind of fell apart before this news was announced, right? Cause Georgetown had to back out and then Virginia had committed somewhere else. So there were already the, the flashing warning lights there that Virginia wasn't going to be down there, but Sounds like they couldn't get everyone on the same page protocols wise or something, even though most of the major conferences have the same protocols. So it would be, I guess, some of the non-Power 5 plus the Big East would be the ones you're talking about for these bubble events, which often have smaller teams involved. So who knows why, but yeah, th- those aren't going to happen. And Virginia is now confirmed to be playing at the Mohegan Sun versus rumored to be playing at the, the Mohegan Sun. But we've known that for a while and have expected Florida for a while. So uh, all, all of that's come out in the last last several days since we did the last podcast they'll open with st peter's on november the 25th so we're under a month away from the start of basketball season and an official start date now we're waiting on time and tv news <laughs> well in that florida game that should be quite a matchup there uh chris horn you've been looking into those guys gators are a top 25 preseason team as well right yeah i guess on the um on the cusp of top 25 I th- last year i think was their year that they had high expectations before finishing 19 and 12 before everything was canceled um unfortunately but um yeah they've had uh, a transfer um their point guard from the last two years andrew nemhart transferred to gonzaga uh good player but just reading uh, you know a few articles on the gators they may be looking at it as kind of like an a, addition by subtraction uh type of scenario not that i don't think uh nemhart was necessarily like a bad locker room influence or anything like that but i think uh you're kind of looking forward to the roster that they have um and they from uva's perspective i know uva fans will remember uh, noah Locke from the recruiting days so now uva will get to see him uva fans will get to see him up close uh two years into college and see how he does he's a Sharpshooter. Florida's got a couple other wings, um, uh, Johnson, uh, Scotty Lewis, some at really athletic guys who can who can score the basketball. They have some size as well, um, not as much size I think as UVA has, um, but uh, so you know, they're athletic and uh, yeah, I'm just looking forward to playing Florida again. Uh, for the past that you know Florida's dealt uh, Tony Bennett some pretty sour uh, sour taste losses, I guess I would say in the NCAA tournament. So I think uh, UVA fans may be looking forward to this game. And never played in the regular season, so that part's interesting. A little bit on both of these teams here at the beginning. You mentioned Noah Locke, 43% from three. So that's why Virginia fans wanted him when <laughs> when all that recruiting was going on because certainly guys that shoot above 40% from three in college is a big deal. Scotty Lewis, a guy that I liked uh, at the Top 100 camp, I think we mentioned him when this was first rumored. Um, he's kind of a stat stuffer guy. Points, rebounds, assists, blocks. He does a little bit of everything. Keontae Johnson on the wing is from Virginia. Played at Old Dominion uh, down from the Tidewater area. He's their leading scorer from a year ago. So uh, some familiar names back on their team, even though they lost Nimhart and they lost the Virginia Tech transfer, Kerry Blackshear, that played for them last year. So when you look at St. Peter's, who I had to look this stuff up. I don't you know, they're not on TV a lot like Florida and you don't see top 100 guys um, before they go to places like St. Peter. They only have a few guys on their roster unless they haven't updated it. They only had eight or nine listed on their official roster, but uh, their leading scorer, Casey Indifo, is back. He is back. He averaged eight and a half points a game as their leading scorer last year. And that's what jumped out to me looking at their stats from a year ago. They had five guys between seven and eight and a half points. So um, if they stick, I guess, to that style or that balance, it'll be interesting to see how Virginia's defense stacks up against that because usually it requires one guy kind of at least getting a chunk of points. If you're relying on kind of breaking it down system-wise, Virginia's is a really hard system to break down. So it'll be interesting to see how St. Peter's handles that. And and I know that at least one thing that a Virginia fan pointed out when this came out is that the good thing about St. Peter's, other than their their mascot or the peacock, uh, the good thing about St. Peter's is they're not a poison pill if net rating ends up being an issue this year. They were much better net rating team than Maine was uh, last year. 
for all this NCAA seeding and all that kind of stuff. Who, who knows how the net will play out this year? Maybe they reverse and Maine's better, but at least if you're looking at last year's stuff, they're not quite the poison pill for seeding purposes that, that Maine would have been uh, a year ago if the tournament had happened. Well, nice to have that uh, game before the Florida game where you don't necessarily want to jump into uh, the season especially at a neutral site like that against a super tough opponent in Florida. So that'll be a bit of a warm-up game for the Who's. And talk about the the scheduling, kind of maybe quirks of the, the schedule, obviously with COVID and things are starting later than normal, but the start of the second semester at UVA is going to be a little bit later. No full spring break. So will that have any impact? Do you foresee that, Chris Wright? Yeah, the only thing I think is interesting that I thought we should mention it is if they're not starting class until February the 1st, that means six weeks of not juggling, <laughs> right? Like instead of four weeks of not juggling, it'll just be interesting to kind of see how that plays out, having an extra two weeks of not having to worry about classes and Zoom and this, that, and the other, and just kind of being focused on basketball. And if other t- other schools also kind of go that route, like Virginia Tech's not having a full spring break either. If other schools are going this, this method, does the ACC stack uh, more games in that chunk of time? that four to six weeks then rather than spreading it out like they, they normally do to give room on the back end in case games need to be made up and moved because we watched fall sports have to postpone and reschedule games. There might need to be flexibility built in if possible. Well, let's uh, build up to the season. We're a month away here, uh, like you said, Chris. So we're going to kind of dissect the roster segment by segment. So for uh, today, how about post players? So we'll uh, go, I guess, Shedrick, Kafaro and Huff. How about starting with those? Pick your poison there, uh, Chris Horn. Which guy do you want to talk about? Okay, we'll start with uh, Caden Shedrick. I guess he's kind of with recruiting kind of more uh, my territory at this point because we haven't gotten to, gotten to see him since he got to UVA. But, of course, he's coming off a redshirt year, which was something I know that he wanted to do coming out of high school just to get bigger and stronger. And that being said, is he ready to contribute? And, and if so, how you know how 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 much will he be needed to contribute this year? I'm not sure. But he's a, he's a skilled kid. Um, he kind of reminded me of, in some ways, of Anthony Gill, just because he's got some nice post moves. He can block shots, but he's obviously taller. He's about 6'11 and, and, and pretty athletic. So he's a very intriguing-looking player. It's just uh, kind of a matter of, uh, again, is there going to be minutes for him to be able to get? And then, you know, how ready is he? I think skills-wise, I think he could probably do some things. But, you know, as far as strength and conditioning uh, is concerned, uh, obviously I think he had some gains of, you know, being able to see him uh, from where he started toward the en- to, to the end of the year. He definitely looked like he made some serious, uh, some significant gains. Uh, how does that affect him kind of heading into this year? Uh, talk about Kafaro. He's – always been intriguing to me he played against some pretty high level international competition even before stepping on grounds right so how do you see his development uh coming along and impacting the who's jeff white at virginiasports.com did an article on him saying he is looking for bigger contributions like trying to make bigger contributions so really when you talk about him and shedrick what we're boiling down here is there are 10 to 15 minutes on average, it may be more some nights because of foul trouble, whatever, available for that backup five, that backup true center spot, because there is no Diakite who was 6'8", but he was capable of playing the five. I don't see any of the 6'8 guys on the roster right now capable of playing the backup five, unless the other team is doing like Virginia Tech style where they have five guards. So maybe in those games, but I'm saying in some of the games where, you know, Clemson and and certainly North Carolina and teams like that, that almost always have one big on the floor, at least. If Huff's not out there, one of these two guys needs to to soak up those 10 to 15 minutes. So who's that going to be? Is it opponent dependent? My guess is it's Kafaro because he's a little more experienced. He's been out there a little bit more. In theory, a little more physical for the reasons Chris just said that Shedrick took the redshirt year to put on, you know, size, et cetera. And then the experience part keeps you out of foul trouble historically for Virginia Big. So even if Shedrick is ready to go, is he ready to not get in foul trouble like uh, Virginia Bigs do sometimes earlier in their career. So I'm thinking Kafaro is the guy that's going to soak up those 10 minutes-ish and maybe Shedrick is more of a spot minutes guy. I know some Virginia fans are thinking the opposite, that Shedrick's got too much skill. He's got too much. Reminds me so much of the Jay Huff conversation. They see all the, the, the flashes and the ability and the possibilities versus the consistency. And consistency is what matters the most. And it's what matters the most certainly for Tony Bennett. So my guess is Kafaro uh, because he's been in these situations before and is a little more uh, physically ready. 
Yeah, I think Shedrick's a little bit more fluid than Huff was at this stage. So it could be interesting, like, if they want to go more athletic. And I agree with you. I think that, you know, when you look at Hauser and McCoy, I don't think any of those guys jump out to me as guys who can play the five um, in, in the way you were saying. So, yeah, I think Shedrick, he's no he's no Diakite, that's for sure. I mean, uh, that's the, I'm not <laughs> – that's for sure. But he's, but he is fluid and he's pretty decent athlete. So I, I wouldn't be surprised to see him, you know, uh, coach Bennett test him out and see how he does. But generally speaking, I think, you know, I think we've seen that coach Bennett does like that physical presence. And I think that's who I think of when I think of a physical presence would be uh, Poppy Cafaro. He doesn't mind mixing it up out there and banging with that. And he's not intimidated. He's aggressive. So, uh, you know, I think from, from that aspect, I think uh, I'm probably going to, I would lean, Kafaro as well. Well, and playing those limited minutes too, it's it was fun to watch him just go in there and bang for a while, get get a couple of fouls. It's all right. He's not going to foul out of the game because he's not going to play long enough to to foul out. But uh, some potential there for sure with both of those guys. Very exciting. And then we devoted uh, a good chunk of a basketball segment in one of these podcasts so a while ago to Jay Huff. So what do you guys see him in that uh, all ACC kind of? territory this year i mean is he is he could he be one of the 15 best players in the conference to be all acc i think he could be i'm going to twist this question a little bit though is he the most important player this year on virginia's roster to me the answer might be yes this year kihei clark last year that was kihei clark virginia couldn't survive without kihei clark last year now they've got reese beekman they've got a guy that can help him play make they've got morcel and, and walter tensai have a year under their belt you've got the youngins on the wing that can help you there you've got sam hauser suddenly eligible so suddenly scoring doesn't look as important well the the segment we dedicated right i, I was on defensive rebounding i thought was huge for huff rim protection was huge for huff the ability his stamina was so much better i feel like because they're not a whole lot of true fives on this roster and because of the versatility that that huff brings to to the offensive end you add all of that up and he may be the most important player on the roster now i would still say kihei clark but i could just make a little bit of an argument he's not quite as important as last year because you have beekman and other option, options but I, I think huff has more of an argument than he's ever had to be maybe the most important player on the Virginia roster. Well, and this year we've got more ball handling available, right? Spread out throughout uh, the potential starting five and and beyond. So hopefully that alleviates some of the pressure on, on Kihei. But uh, what do you think, uh, Chris Horn? How many blocks per game is, uh, is Mr. <laughs> Huff? The, the block dunk over under. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good, good great question. Uh, let's see. Blocks and dunks combined? Are we doing uh, – uh, sure. what, what do we think? That'd be uh, a fun stat. Somebody will put that together. Three blocks, uh, two dunks per game maybe? I like it. Okay. Yes. Too much? That's three blocks per game, game would be a single-season Bennett-era record because that, that would put you in the neighborhood of 70-some blocks. And mm-hmm. I think Diakite is the single-season holder, or Huff is one of the two, right around the low 60s. So three a game would be um, a monster year, but – yeah. It's certainly possible because he's going to be in that 25 to 30 minute range, like we talked about on the last podcast. He's the main shot blocker for sure this year. Diakito, actually, I'm looking at his stats now. It just so happened I was in the neighborhood there and uh, 1.3 blocks a game this past year and uh, 1.7 blocks a game the year before. I would not have guessed that, but uh, more playing time, I guess, for Mamadi. Uh, in his final year with the Who's, and we wish him the best of luck coming up with the uh, the NBA draft in a few weeks. But uh, yeah, so when you talk front court, maybe the small ball lineups you guys were referring to earlier, got to talk about Hauser and McCoy. So what do you think about them in that four or five position there? Um, yeah, the question is how much small ball. It's going to happen. And Coach Bennett even mentioned on John Rothstein's podcast that Hauser's versatile enough to play three and four. So it's clearly on their mind a little bit too. And that might be where you get him some mismatches or get other guys mismatches by getting more offense on the floor. So the question to me is how much? And right now, I don't have a real good feel for that. I know that they like two lead guards. So does that mean Beekman gets some minutes? And if he if that means Beekman's getting minutes, that probably means Hauser is sliding down a spot um, in order to make spot for uh, make room for another wing forward type because you are playing both of your lead guards at the same time. So it'll it'll be interesting to see how much. I, I'm thinking you know maybe 35, 40% of the game, so a third of the game maybe. Uh, playing small ball. So for for Hauser, if you're penciling him in at 33 minutes. 11 to 14 minutes, maybe opponent dependent playing that power forward slot, particularly because they don't have a backup five. You're going to need him to soak up some minutes at the four to help with that, I think. So 
if I'm reading all the, the tea leaves and my guesses correctly based on historical precedent, I think Hauser's going to play a bunch of those minutes. And McCoy, I'm intrigued by because I think he's got the Wilkins glue guy thing. And if he does, and particularly if he rebounds well, then maybe Hauser doesn't play as much down there, right? Like that, that to me is the question is, what does that mean? And that, you know, then, then do you get big lineups where you see Hauser, McCoy and Huff or Kafaro or Shedrick, right? Like we saw last year with Key, Diakite and Huff. Do we see more of that or do we see more small ball? And I don't think we have a clear answer yet. I'm not sure the class, the, the staff has a, a clear answer yet either. So um, that's one of the things you have to find out in the preseason and early games, even though you don't have as many bye games this year. Well, and Chris Horn talk about McCoy because, you know, I'm intrigued too. Uh, like Chris is, you know, 14 games played, so not a whole lot to go on. Average about seven minutes a game. And I, I feel like he was a fairly uh, highly touted recruit and had a pretty good high school career coming out of Cary, North Carolina. So it sounds like he's bulked up a little bit. And uh, what do you look for from him uh, based on his background, maybe even without playing a whole lot last year? Yeah, he had signed with Penn State. And then after uh, they let him out, out of his letter of intent, he received an offer from Virginia, but also North Carolina. So there, there was the added bonus of beating UNC out for a recruit. So that was pretty neat for, I think, for Virginia fans. But, I mean, he, he's one guy whose game I don't really have a great feel for yet. And so that's going to be you – know, that's kind of a, a question mark that I have that obviously once we get to see him play some extended time, we'll have a better chance and kind of understand more what he's – what he can do. Yeah, he's got that six eight. He's and he, he's trimmed down. One thing he did do and work concentrate on was to trim down over the course of his uh, his freshman year. He did play some, but um, that was an area of focus for for him. I think he's got you know, he's got a six eight. So he kind of fits the bill as a as a potential combo forward. You know whether and he seems like he is kind of a high energy guy as well. But we know you know like with. Isaiah Wilkins, his defensive prowess was kind of unmatched. You know, so I'm not sure exactly where Justin's strengths are as far as, you know, is he more of an offensive guy? Is he is he you know, rebounding defense? But, you know, I think energy is definitely something that he uh, can and will bring to the table. Huff is, uh, you know, definitely a candidate for one of the most important players of the team. But as far as like, maybe an underrated guy who could uh, fill a big role, I think McCoy could be that guy. Well, it was kind of interesting. Uh, 17 minutes, that's by far the most he played last year against UNC in the Who's victory there. He uh, had four points, five rebounds, so pretty good showing there against his home state team. So Braxton Key missed that game with the broken wrist. So does that tell us anything or does it not? I, I have no idea. <laughs> that, that's why that's one of the more interesting <laughs> questions. Like, Justin McCoy, what, what what's going to happen with that particular roster spot? Back to those big lineups, I guess, Hauser, McCoy, on the court at the same time you think and and maybe one of those other three bigs that we were just talking about um possibly going away from the small ball and playing the big lineup sometimes they did that a lot last year because that was the best lineup that was available right key diakite and huff so i don't know that mccoy is as ready or as important as braxton key was which is what led to that so the, the question really here is established guys versus trying to establish them yourself guys mccoy jabri abdur rahim carson mccorkle shedrick uh, uh, shedrick right that it, that's really what this all boils down to to answer that small versus big question and, and that's one of the things that makes this year interesting you got young guys coming in that that have the ability recruiting ranking wise to play they, they fit into that force their way into the conversation early mold like guy jerome did right and played his freshman malcolm brogdon as well they forced their way into the conversation and then older guys the shayoks the thompsons etc had to to make room for those that particular year and that led to a bunch of guys getting minutes spread out in part because no one really strangleholded the three that year, that that small forward spot, in part because of what happened to Austin Nichols. Or are we looking at a similar deal this year where a whole bunch of guys trying to establish themselves leads to season minutes becoming like a several averaging a lot, but it kind of fluctuates game to game? Or are we looking at somebody kind of making a case? And, you know, that, that was not the best year for Virginia. And it all kind of like, you know, they were still a four seed, five seed, whatever. Let's, <laughs> so relatively not, not a good year for Virginia, but uh, they never could quite find the rhythm or the lineups that worked the best that year um, and struggled more than they do some years uh, under Tony Bennett. So I would think they'd be a little wary about playing too many guys, too many minutes. Like I was saying on, a, on one of these recent podcasts, I don't see 10 guys playing. So it's really about who can, can edge out who. Is that McCoy that forces it with a, a Wilkins type role or is it, 
someone like Jabri Abdur-Rahim who forces it with ability to get his own shot. And that moves Hauser down to the four more often, that sort of thing. So lots of questions, not a lot of answers. It's just interesting to think about which way would they lean? Would they lean three kind of front court guys like last year, or would they lean small ball, which is what they had started to prefer during the Hunter years? I tend to lean small ball based on where, just where I think basketball is right now uh, on every level, um, but we'll see you know, what they end up deciding. Well, it's been, been interesting to see those battles between Leonard Hamilton down at Florida State where he does just have, he brings in a whole fresh uh, group of guys off the bench and they're just as good as the guys that went to the bench. So maybe Tony's uh, putting some feathers in his cap there in terms of uh, looking at the rest of the, the conference and, and what we're up against uh, year after year with some of the other teams. So talk guards and wings next week, getting ever closer to the start of basketball up next we'll talk some music and turn the tables uh, with a couple of full moons this month including one on halloween we'll take a look at some cool moon songs next here on the saber.com podcast the front porch is a nonprofit roots music organization and we uh, connect everyone through music i like the way that the front porch encourages people to to sort of engage with their community and sort of enlarge the community Everybody is included, and that's really what the word community is about, you know, making sure that everybody has their chance to have a good time and, and participate and add something. All right, welcome back. Sabre editor Chris Wright here for the last segment. We are turning the tables with Jeff Sweatman, talk music a little bit at the end, uh, tied into our off-topic message board that we call The Corner, uh, where people hang out and talk about stuff that you would talk about when you used to go to your office. Um, maybe you talk about it on your zoom calls now or something out there, but, uh, water cooler talk or, uh, is now zoom talk, I guess. So anyway, we like to do music at the end, two full moons in the month of October. So, uh, we decided a few weeks ago, we would put this one somewhere in this month and a Halloween full moon might be the next thing that, that COVID ruins, because I know, you know, in, at least in some parts of the country, parents of certain age kids, which includes me with a, an eight and a five-year-old, trying to decide what to do trick-or-treating wise. How do you hand out your candy? Are you making one of those PVC pipes that you slide the candy down? Like, are you leaving a table on you? All these conversations going on among parents, I'm sure. But full moon, we wanted to do moon songs. And I thought since we did Tom Petty last week, I would just start it right there. Heather loves this album, my wife. Full Moon Fever is one of her favorite Tom Petty albums. And you, and you get it, free falling, I won't back down. Uh, some of the all-time classics are on that album. What, what, what did you like about that Tom Petty record? That really put him in, an, in another stratosphere with the Jeff Lynne production on it. And it was just a Tom Petty album. It wasn't Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, although he had a couple of Heartbreakers in his van and it basically was the Heartbreakers on that record. For some reason, it, it just stood out for that. And, you know, yeah, it was just hit after hit after hit all that year and the following year on the radio, song after song from that album. And I, I think a lot of artists were influenced, maybe coming along from a, a younger, it almost introduced him to a younger generation at that point, because he was already established. He was already a big rock star, but, but that kind of started his second phase of his career, I feel like. So I came across an interview actually with the longtime drummer in that second wave, starting with Wildflowers, which we talked about uh, recently, Steve Ferroni, great drummer, has been a session guy for most of his career. And then once he teamed up with Tom Petty, he he gradually became, although I'm the way the article reads it, I'm not sure if he ever became an official heartbreaker. Uh, I think they called him the sidebreakers <laughs> <laughs> or something, but it's a great interview that Rolling Stone did with him recently about uh, those Petty years and beyond. So we'll, we'll get a link to that one. Man, that guy's got some stories and he even played with Duran Duran at one point. So New Moon on Monday, I thought of that one. Uh, Harvest Moon, Neil Young, great album and a great title track. Space Oddity, David Bowie, kind of about going to the uh, to the moon. And then there's one, uh, The Killing Moon is by Echo and the Bunnymen. That's one of those great going into Halloween kind of. And now that there's a full moon on Halloween, I mean, you got to listen to that one. It's It was used expertly at the very beginning of Donnie Darko, if you've ever seen that movie. Uh, some great music in that movie. But uh, Walking right. on the Moon, The Police... Yeah, I, th I thought of some too, but since you mentioned a movie, I wanted to ask you a movie question related to free falling. Have yes. you ever done the Jerry Maguire thing where you're just belting out free falling somewhere? <laughs> I have. That That is one of those songs. Yes. Pretty much whenever it comes on, I think you, <laughs> you're just compelled to like, oh, free. 
Good <laughs> ask. Uh, nice. Obviously, another album with Moon in the title, Dark Side of the Moon. Oh, yeah. Um, yep. So another urban legend question. You ever done that where you sync it up to Wizard of Oz? I've actually not done that. I have not, but I know you're a big Wizard of Oz guy. But I've never done that. This weekend. <laughs> you should no, totally do not that. Not this weekend. weekend. I got uh, 8 o'clock ACC network uh, <laughs> calling my no. name again. <laughs> but uh, you mentioned several Moon songs. Um, I thought of several, uh, Bad Moon Rising, uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival, yep. Man on the Moon, R.E.M. That's a song that's really uh, one of those that gets stuck in your head really easily. Moon Dance, Van Morrison, uh, Fly Me to the Moon. I had to do that one with Frank Sinatra because my brother-in-law is a, a Sinatra fan. I, t- I say a lot on the podcast, I grew up on country music. So for my parents, Brooks and Dunn, Neon Moon. And then a, a band that comes up a lot on our message board is Wilco. They have a song called Black Moon. So I, I came up with several there. Did did we miss any? And we'll put the thread up there. We do this every time. Tell us the moon songs that you can think of or any that we missed. Yes, we'll definitely get a playlist going. Uh, those are the those are the big ones. And then there was the Andy Kaufman movie that was sort of based on the Man in the Moon song that R.E.M. did, right? Uh, I don't know. There's a connection there somewhere. <laughs> I haven't seen the movie. You know, we could maybe throw a Teen Wolf song in there since oh, Full nice. Moon on Halloween. We need to find yes. it if there's a Teen Wolf related moon song. <laughs> I think for my costume, I'm going for the Cobra Kai look. I found one of those skeleton uh, ensembles at the <laughs> party starts here. So I'm not sure we'll go outside with it necessarily, but we'll scare any trick-or-treaters that show up. So That reminded me, there was a, I had asked you about Zebra on our Cobra Kai podcast episode. Yes. That band name came up again on a, a <laughs> podcast I was listening to. I think I was listening to Dak Shepard, the Armchair Expert <laughs> uh, podcast, interviewing Bon Jovi, and the name Zebra came up. And that I was like, what? <laughs> I've never heard of these guys. And I've heard of them twice this fall. So um, I don't know if they had a moon song either, but if they did, I'm going to put that in the, yes. in the article too, because suddenly Zebra making a comeback via the saber.com. So <laughs> um, we just thought it would be fun. Full moon songs twice yeah. in October. Uh, my son is a um, loves the moon, loves full moon. So he's excited about the fact that He'll be up to see it on Halloween more than likely. Yeah, did we forget any? We'll put the thread on the board. Uh, we can't play you out with music anymore. They changed some things up, but we do drop YouTube videos in the article format of the podcast, which we also embed uh, on the site. So you don't have to have a podcast app or a smartphone or any of those things. If you just want to pull up our website, you can listen to the podcast embed that way. In the meantime, will a full moon continue the house of horrors that is Scott Stadium for Mac Brown? Matt Brown has never won at Scott Stadium. Uh, he's bringing a, a UNC favorite team here again. My freshman year, he was trying to run up the score, and Antoine Harris with the interception goes 96 yards to continue that bad moon rising type of vibe for Matt Brown yeah. and Charlottesville. So we shall see what happens with the Tar Heels and the, the Wahoos this time around. And until then, we'll see you next time.